Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. Hear God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, rise, take the child and his mother to go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, I was in a department store in December and they were playing Christmas music on in the background. And I don't think I was paying particular attention to it as I was shopping, but I must've been paying at least some attention to it because a a certain line stood out. And I remember it was a song. So there was a band called the Bare Naked Ladies and they did a version of God Rest Ye Weary Gentlemen. And I'm sitting there shopping and the line to free us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. (laughs) Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. 
uh, quite a jarring line to hear when you're out there in a department store. And I sort of stopped and looked around and wondered if, if, if there would be a pause of the unusual nature. Uh, we just heard to free us all from Satan's power. And people just went on shopping. <laughs> Understandable. It's background music. I don't know who else was listening. But there was something that left me wondering, um, what is it that, that a line weighty like that, something, something quite terrible, could, could just be thrown out there as part of a, a regular holiday cheerful song and shopping. And it, it's a reminder to me that, that while Christmas is this wonderful holiday where we should focus on all the wonderful things, let's, let's decorate, let's have food, let's enjoy ourselves. This is not meant to be one of those religious anti-fun, you know, attacking, you know, kind of culture sermons. Um, but it does raise the question to say, how is it that, that somehow in our current practices, something, something that's been part of how Christian has been, uh, Christmas has been conceived of throughout the ages um, seems to have no weight or impact or is just there. Either we drop it or it's there without any impact to say something about Jesus coming to free us from Satan's power. And for us not to be struck by that, um, you know, I, I'm wondering this year, given how difficult the past year has been because of COVID, things in, connected with COVID, but then all sorts of other terrible things that think things are always, can always be difficult. But this year, I think more and more people are aware of it. I think the kind of Christmas celebration where we say, let's just focus on everything that's great just won't work for as many people as it normally does. There's always some people that always feel isolated at the holidays because they're grieving, they're suffering. This year, I think there's more and more people that are experiencing that. And, and when we go back and we look at, not just at what the Bible says, but how Christians throughout the centuries have, have used the season of remembering the birth of Jesus, there's always been a sense within it that Jesus came precisely because things are so difficult and terrible which means the Christmas holiday is not for those uh, for whom things who are going well to be thankful and celebrated, but it's, it's really meant for all, including those for whom things are not going well. And so what we're doing this month is we're having a, a sermon series where we're looking at, the f at, at passages that connect with the five stanzas of one of the, the well-known Advent Christmas hymns, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And there are five stanzas in it. We'll look at one each Sunday and then uh, one on Christmas Eve. Today, we're looking at the third stanza uh, where, where the longing is for the coming of the rod of Jesse. And so what a weird thing to think about. Um, what do we want? What are we longing for? Well, the, the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, says we're longing. One of the things is for the rod of Jesse. Now, what is that? I'll talk a little bit about that soon. Um, but, the, but the paragraph or the, the stanza that we're reflecting on today, come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. There's another Christmas song that says something about Jesus coming into the world has to do with not simply bringing joy and celebration, but bringing it in the context of great evil. From the depths of hell thy people save, give them victory over the grave. 
that's uh, the third stanza of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The reason that I thought this would be a good year to link our sermons to that song, couple of reasons. One is the song is just, a, it's a wonderful song. It's set to a great melody. It's a, it's a great one to sing. Another is that the words are penned, the original words were, were penned roughly 1,200 years ago. How many songs do you sing where the words are that old? And so this links us to something bigger than ourselves, something bigger to this time period. Uh, but one of the reasons I thought this would be a particularly good hymn for this Christmas is because it is a hymn about joy. That's the chorus, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel, it's, it's a song of rejoicing. But, but the particular setting that most of us sing it in, the one that we'll be singing next week and the week after, is not with dancing and clapping, not that there's anything wrong with that form of rejoicing, but there's a, a slow longing in the whole song that when we sing rejoice, we're, we're singing it within that reality. And it's a reminder that where the Advent season is meant to be a season where we normally reflect on our longing. Why is it that Jesus needed to come? This year, the longing is maybe more at the surface for some of us than it is in typical years. And so there's this hymn that reminds us, well, God's people have always struggled in this world. But the, the coming of Jesus into the world is really an occasion for joy. And it's, it's a hope for people, even in the midst of their struggling. The, the hope is that we all have the opportunity to rejoice this year. And we may not be feeling great. We may not be excited about Christmas. We may not be happy. Or we may. I want to make sure that there's no guilt if, this, if you're doing well this year. Wonderful. Uh, but I think where more of us are just aware that this Christmas is not going to be the same, we can have joy if we understand the biblical Christmas story and how it's been understood by God's longing people throughout the ages. So what I wanna talk about today is the tyranny of evil and how God addresses that through a ruler who he sends to shepherds. So I'm gonna begin talking about the tyranny of evil. And I'm using that language because stanza three of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is free us from Satan's tyranny. Now, the passage that was read for us from Matthew 2 Satan is not named. Satan is not there. And in fact, the funny thing is, in most of the Bible, you don't read much about Satan at all. What's interesting from a Christian perspective, where Jesus is the one that leads us in interpreting the scriptures before him, Jesus does talk about Satan. Not a lot, um, but Jesus is tempted, faces Satan himself, but uses the language of Satan and the devil, which then um, helps us understand what he sees, what was going on throughout scripture. But it's an interesting thing. Now, one component of that is to make sure that the, the focus of Christianity never becomes on Satan. <laughs> the focus is on God. It's on God's goodness and redemption and, and all of these things. Sometimes um, we could have maybe an unhealthy obsession that the focus then becomes on evil and fighting evil. And the focus is on good and following and loving God. But the reality is where evil continues to exist, we need to uh, exercise faith by resisting, by challenging it. And yet through much of the Bible, we don't see Satan explicitly named or acting, but we can see some of the effects of his presence and his work. And so, uh, you know, it was interesting in, in New York City for many years, certainly from the time of the 20s, uh, if not before that, but, but the mafia in the city was this presence that was this threatening 
presence. It was organized crime. There would be shakedowns of businesses and people being threatened. But the interesting thing is for, for most of that time, the mafia tried to operate as behind the scenes, as invisible as possible. They didn't want to be caught by the police uh, or the FBI or, or whatever would be the case. And they're more effective when they're not seen. And the interesting thing about evil is you need to show up every now and then to do something terrible. Somebody's legs needs to be broken. And then when you disappear uh, into the background, the imagination that they must be even more dangerous than, than perhaps they actually are. And the funny thing is, you know, you look at, at pictures of some of these mafia leaders in the, in the 1950s and 60s, and they, they look like grandfathers. Some of them, they, they don't look like threatening guys. They don't look like good fighters. Um, they don't look like bad people. They look like ordinary people. And that's actually quite effective. And, and then things shifted with John Gotti in New York, uh, who was a tough guy, who was a handsome guy. He would wear these expensive suits and he, he came out in public. And, and the interesting thing is once the mafia in New York became public in, in the mid 80s uh, to a degree that they were in the news regularly, then they were able to be opposed that 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 since then, since the 90s, um, certainly the Italian mafia in New York has not had the same power. And there have been other groups that have come up uh, and there's a very various reasons. But it was almost as if they were more powerful when they when they only came out occasionally. And that's the nature of evil, because evil doesn't work on the truth. <laughs> and part of deception is not being seen for what you are. And so this figure of Satan in the Bible is, first of all, not a prominent figure, not an important figure. And it's not that there's God and Satan is equal and the world is that we're, they're battling out. There's God. <laughs> and then there are these angelic beings like Michael and Gabriel, but then there's Satan, the one who is turned. And so it's not that, that Satan and God are equal and battling it out, but God is overall. But in this world, there's this this powerful, mysterious, personalized figure as, as Jesus in his ministry personalizes um, uh, e the force of evil, we find that it manifests itself, uh, evil manifests itself where you could look at various parts of the Bible and Satan is not named, but, but the attributes given to this force of evil, the liar, the accuser, the persecutor, the, the corrupt one, the one who divides, the one who brings murder. That actually you see throughout the Bible and throughout history. So in the Bible, one of the clear examples of somebody who was distinctly opposed in a battle with God is in the book of Exodus. Now, as far as I know, the name Satan is not named the devil. No, none of those concepts are in the book of Exodus. But here you open with this story of God's people groaning in oppression. Something's not right. And there they are in Egypt. And Pharaoh is this very important king. He's this, this global figure. And he has the Hebrew people enslaved, so he's not treating them fairly, and they're groaning, and they're overwhelmed, but, but God is with them, and they're multiplying, they're flourishing, but that becomes threatening to that king. <laughs> so what does he do? He decides the most effective practical thing would be to start killing the male children. Now, again, you say that this is not attributed to Satan, but what kind of leader would start killing children? Something's wrong here. And then God raises up Moses, a child who survives, and Moses is sent before Pharaoh as a messenger. Here's what God says. Let my people go that they may worship me. And we find that Pharaoh is a human figure. He's a real human figure. And in his humanness, there are times that he realizes after these signs of, of, of who the God that is with Moses is, he, he realizes, I better let these people go. But there's this grappling. There's some force at work in Pharaoh that he winds up coming back hard-hearted and opposing God. 
In Hebrew, the word worship is the same word as serve. The word is avad. So, so Moses is saying, what, what my, here's God's message. Let my people go that they may worship me. And Pharaoh says, no, they're going to stay here and serve me. But it's the same language. It's the same word. Um, Mar- uh, Pharaoh is not letting God's people go to worship and serve God. He's keeping them there to serve him, which is to institute himself as the one that they need to obey, honor. He's making sure they worship him. And in that sense, Pharaoh sets himself up against God. God's people will not go to worship him, but they will stay here and they will serve and honor me. And if they become threatening to me, I will kill them. I will exercise force. That's what evil looks like. That's what tyranny looks like in this world. Now we come to Matthew 2 and we have a figure who's not as powerful as Pharaoh, Herod. He was the king, but he's king in this region, and actually it's the Roman government that even allows him to be the king, which is telling. He's not a king in the line of David. He's not a king that was raised up by God, and yet he's this local ruler. And the funny thing is, on the one hand, when you read the history about Herod, he's this terrible figure who did all of these awful things, but but he also did a lot of building of the second temple and palaces and, and like any human figure, people would be confused. He does these awful things. He's this violent, impatient person, but, but look at all the good he's doing for our people. And that's part of the, the manipulation, the evil, the tyranny of Satan. Satan is not named in this passage, but, but the passage tells a story that, that the time has come, that God has heard the cries of his people, the longing. And all things are being fulfilled, the prayers throughout the ages, the prophecies. And you're starting to see that just in this one brief passage, Matthew 2, how many passages of the Old Testament are quoted or alluded to. And now the time has come where God has finally come. This is good news for all of God's people. He has heard us. Things are coming together. Things are about to change. Now, Herod is the king of this area, should consider himself one of God's people. Why does he not experience this is good news. And there are echoes of the story of Exodus repeating itself. In other words, there are patterns in history that repeat themselves. So here again, we have a king who wants to remain king. And now there's an announcement. And and that's what verse two is. The magi, these figures come from the east and, and, you know, God has led them there. Their theology is not strong. They don't know much about this people. They don't know the significance of the birth of Jesus in any depth, but, but they see this star. They have this invitation to come and they come with an innocent question. We need more information. We have the star bringing us to this general area, but where is the one born the King of the Jews? That should be an exciting question. God's people should say, wait a second. After all of these ages, one has been born. And Herod doesn't hear this as a wonderful question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews is a threatening question. When you want to be the king that, that is honored, that is in charge, when you want to maintain your throne. So he would have had the opportunity to say, this is so wonderful. The time has come. Let me give my kingship over. But instead, what does he do? He puts himself in opposition to God. And we see this in, in verse three. It says, when, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. What does it say about Herod that he was troubled when he hears that a king of the Jews was born rather than being excited when he himself claims to be a leader among this community? What does it say about Herod when it says all Jerusalem was troubled? Who's all Jerusalem? I don't know, but it might have been the leaders, uh, the religious leaders who he turned to 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 ask 
uh, the answer to the question, how do we find out where he's been born? But what does it say about the nature of Herod that, that if he hears about the king of the Jews, the people who are around him become troubled. <laughs> they become nervous. That's tyranny. That's corrupt leadership. We don't want this guy going off the rails. This is an unhealthy situation. And so Matthew presents the story of Jesus coming into the world with parallels to what happened in the story of Exodus. So, so Matthew, the New Testament opens with a genealogy, which says, you know, in a sense, Herod, who has no proper link to the kingship, Jesus does because he was born from Abraham and from David, and you can trace him back. But see how the story unfolds, whereas the story of Exodus is about the children being killed and Moses confronting and God's people coming out of Egypt and parting the seas and going into the wilderness and receiving the law on a mountain and wandering and being tested all before they go into the promised land. Matthew tells the story about Jesus coming into the world to fulfill scripture. And what happens? Children are killed. Herod starts to kill the children in Jerusalem in order to, to stop God from doing his work. And then uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus have to flee to Egypt in order to find safety. And the passage tells us, but, but there's a narrative significance. When, it's, when Herod dies and they return, now this passage originally about Israel is being fulfilled that out of Egypt, God is calling his son. And then what happens in Matthew? Well, Jesus is baptized. He goes through the waters. And where does he go? He goes through the waters into the wilderness. Matthew three, he's baptized. Matthew four, he's tested in the wilderness by Satan. But what's different is he doesn't give in. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't uh, submit to temptation, but he resists and he remains strong. And then Matthew five, he goes up in the mountain and he instructs God's way, just like the law given at Sinai. There's a picture of the story that keeps repeating itself of how evil opposes God's people and God's people are destroyed or give in. Finally, the fulfillment is happening that one person comes, God himself, and he enters into the story and the story repeats itself, except Satan doesn't win. Evil continues to exist, but now he is resisted because this one person is new and unique. And so in verse 16, it says, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. You know, we're looking at this a, a few weeks before Christmas because I'm not one of those that, you know, I'm going to have a bad Christmas this year and I want to ruin it for the rest of you. <laughs> but we have to remember for the Christmas story to realize why the news was good. It's because of a story that assumes this world is not good. And that's something that we don't readily admit. We don't want to honestly say that because it's so overwhelmingly discouraging. And so we don't want to think about the tyranny of evil or Satan's power manifesting itself through human beings who have power in this world. And yet the more we ignore it, the more we find that we're controlled by it. And so, so the Christmas story is the story. The dominant theme is God's goodness. Look at what God does. He's heard the prayers of his people. He sends Jesus into the world. These magi come and offer gifts. Everything about it is exciting. But the nature of our world is whenever good is done, it's opposed. God sends Jesus into the world. Finally, the king of the Jews has been born. And why is that one of the responses is, I'm troubled and I'm gonna respond with evil to try to stop this from proceeding. What does it say about our world? 
And it's that reality that's worth reflecting on this year, because on the one hand, it's understandable that none of us wants to focus on the negative. Uh, we want to focus on the positive. We want to focus on what's good and right. But as, as a culture, we've moved away from having any language to talk about evil and its power. And so it's, we're at an interesting time where, because of secularism, to believe in God, you know, it could go either way. You're fine believing in God, but you're not fine not believing in God. That's kind of new. But, but you know, some people may look down on people who believe in God. But, but the general sense is if you believe in God, I disagree with you, but you're okay. You're not crazy for believing in God. For the most part, people think that way. But believing in Satan, you know, that's weird. Um, you can believe in God, but to believe in Satan, and even in the church, we're right not to emphasize that. But, but we could be clear in our conviction about God, but, but there's a sense in which is evil in any way personal or is it just something out there? And it's not that we need to become obsessed and have that be our focus, but one of the things we've lost is the ability to define and to recognize the work of evil because we've lost a standard by which uh, to measure evil against. So what happens is evil continues to go on unresisted. And then when it shows itself, we're confused enough about it. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to think about it. And the tragedy is because of the reality of evil and our instinct to know it's there without being able to clear clearly define it, then what happens is we then turn against one another. And that's one of the things that we saw starting to sharpen just this last year, the stress of COVID, the isolation, all of these things accelerated the polarization of society because what should bring us together is good things. Hey, I play chess, you play chess. We grew up in different backgrounds. We don't have a lot in common, but that common thing brings us together. We build a friendship on it. But what's more powerful in bringing together people together if we hate the same thing? And, and there's something that's happening right now that, that our, our communities are unifying over, over common hatred. And we're not able to define that there's any evil power. So what happens is people who are simply different from us, now we're starting to hate them. We've lost the standard. We've lost the clarity. We've lost the categories. And now it becomes weird that in a Christmas song, Satan would be named. What on earth is that? And yet evil is still in the world and we still want good. And so what happens is where we're not able to clear, clearly recognize it, we wind up turning against one another. That, my friends, is part of the tyranny of Satan. <laughs> That's the effectiveness of the accuser and the liar and the deceiver and the persecutor. He won't use violence if he doesn't have to. But if he brings out a little violence to, to make us afraid and to, to, to have fear capture our imaginations, well, then it will turn us against one another. The Christmas story tells us, it reminds us that the nature of this world is that whenever good is done, and good should always be done, whenever it's done, it's resisted. God sends Jesus into the world in the fullness of time. What a great thing. God himself has come to bring hope and light and deliverance. Why is it that that's resisted? And for yourself, when you find, if you are wise, you should commit your life to doing good. And what happens when you do it? You find it is hard. Why is it? Now, now, the resistance to good happens in various ways. I'll give three examples. One is just within us. You don't even want to do it. We find the resistance is there. You know, somebody's suffering and you have no compassion. You don't care. So on the one hand, sometimes we just don't even desire to do good. 
What's probably most common is you have the desire to do good, but you also have the desire to do evil. So here's this good thing that I really want to do, but here's this thing I shouldn't want to do. And, and my life constitutes both. And I'm trying as hard to do the good things and I'm trying as hard not to do the bad things, but there's a bit of up and down. Sometimes I do the good, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I do the bad, sometimes I don't. But why is it that the more we try to give ourselves to good, all of a sudden we realize that, that then the bad seems to, to show up in, in our opportune times to prevent us from doing good. And then even within us, if we can really grow and mature to say, no, I'm so committed in desiring good, but we find that whenever we try to do it, it's just hard. And it's not always personal. Sometimes this world just doesn't function well, but sometimes it is personal. Sometimes people are not, sometimes people are invested in opposing the good that we would do. What does that say about our world? It says the tyranny of evil still continues. And, and the way that you see it is not beca by becoming obsessed with evil, but by devoting yourself to good. That's the, the call of Christianity. Believe in what's good, devote yourself to what's good but you find yourself trying to do it and you get worn down. It doesn't seem to work or you're so tired or you're so discouraged or the, the forces against you, whether they're within you, your own apathy or your own temptation or whether they're outside of you, it is really hard to consistently and thoroughly devote your life to good in this world. That it's easier to either just join in evil or to just give up doing good so that you're left alone. And this is a season that all of us are tiring. <laughs> we're lethargic. Everything is harder. And yet we're still called to do good. And now it's just harder to do. And, and I think it's helpful to look at this story as a reminder of, of the more the good you do, the more it will be opposed. Uh, but that points to us a problem that needs to be solved. So what do we need? And that, that's the second thing that I want to talk about. I've been talking about the tyranny of evil because that is part of the human experience. However we perceive it, however we name it, if you want to love God and do his will, it will not be easy in this world. But what hope is there for us? Is there any hope? Or inevitably, is the power always greater than us? And the discouraging answer is, yes, the power is always greater than any one of us individually. That doesn't mean in any one situation that if you really commit to doing something good, that through hard work and effort, you can't achieve that project. But over the course of our lives, we won't defeat death. There's a, you know, we could postpone it. We can manage our lives for the fullness, but, but to the degree that sin and death and evil are all connected in the Bible in this package, who of us could face death with any hope that we could conquer it? Who of us, when we come together, could, could ever think we could do this? The tyranny of evil uses death to intimidate us, to overwhelm us. It's part of the Christ Christian story, the Christmas story. But what we're told is as we commit to doing good, and as we see our own helplessness because we're apathetic, or because we're tempted within, or because the world opposes it, or however we experience it, we're told that we need something. And that's where the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So right now, if we said, let's write our own poem about longing. How are you longing right now? What's lacking in your life and what do you need? What's the list of things that you would come up with? Would the rod of Jesse be one of the things that would be on your list of this is what I need this Advent season? And no, there's nothing wrong with you for thinking, I don't even know what that means. But what's helpful about this hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is over this month, we'll look at five different things that people throughout the ages have thought 
this is encouraging. And by the way, um, two additional stanzas were added. So if you want even more things to take hold of this Advent season, <laughs> read the seven stanza version. Um, but, but the rod of Jesse. Now, one of the classic Christmas texts is from Isaiah 11. So if you want something to read this week, the prophecy of Isaiah 11.1 1, that says, God will send a servant, a ruler, uh, and, and the language is, shall come forth, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of David, the figure of the great king. David was not a perfect person. He too gave into temptation. But God worked in the life of David in a way that brought peace to God's people for a season, that the prophets after David, looking at the corrupt rulers around them, hope that one day that somebody in that line from Jesse, the stump that's been cut off, that a branch, a shoot would come out, some rod, some, something connecting to that old story when God was at work and was with us and raised somebody up that ruled by faith not like the rulers of this world. That was the hope. That was the longing. Oh, come, oh, come, uh, Emmanuel, the, the longing, come thou rod of Jesse. Um, the language there is to say one of the things we need is a ruler, but it comes with the kind of skepticism people in this world have, which is to say, uh, I don't know that I want another person in power to come because every time somebody with power arises, they wind up having some component of tyranny, of abusing their power, of lying, manipulating, because there's a certain package that ruling, leading comes with in our world. The longings of the prophets were for somebody who didn't look like the rulers of the world. And Isaiah said, one day God will come and he himself will rule. And so, so the longing that we have is for somebody to rule because leadership ruling authority in this world does not look good always. But the question of, can you rule your own life? You want to live a good life. Can you control your thoughts so you're not thinking thoughts that you know are wrong? Can you control your actions so you don't fall into the same pattern of sin? Every one of us will say, if I thoroughly wanted to commit my life to good, I can't even rule myself. It's a constant struggle. I can't overcome my own small temptations what hope is there for the world if we're all stuck in this? What we're told is not that we need rulers. We're told we need one who will be different from all others. The reason the Christmas story is some good news, so much good news is because in the midst of people who are longing and suffering, and not suffering just generally, but suffering under the kind of leaders who kill children, that's the Christmas story. Those longing people are told rejoice because if you wait on the Lord, he will hear your cries and fulfill his promises. So verse six, one of the quotes of this passage, this happens to come from the book of, it's an allusion to the book of Micah, the promise of what was happening when Jesus was born. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's what God promised. One day you will get a ruler, <laughs> but he won't be a guy with a huge army. And he won't be a guy with a huge harem. And he won't be a guy with lots of possessions. But he will be like David, who came out of the fields to face Goliath. He will be like Moses, who came up from shepherding the sheep. And he was afraid of Pharaoh, but the spirit of God was on him. And he faced him and brought people out. He will come when small and pathetic Herod, who has little power. But he will face Caesar. <laughs> he will face Satan. There is one ruler 
And the Bible says what we're celebrating in Matthew 2 and the Luke narratives is God sent this one into the world, the one who would be a ruler who would shepherd, he would defend and he would protect. And that's what we get is the Bible promises, the more that you try to do good and find, you don't have the power to do it. The more you start longing for somebody to give you that power, when will it come? And what we're told is it started in its fullness when Jesus came. We now have a ruler who would shepherd us, which means we have a defender and we have somebody who will lead us. And so the good news of the Christmas story is that the tyranny of Satan is actually um, it's more invisible than we think, but it's also far less powerful than you think. Um, because God has come, we don't have to be defeated by evil. And so you read the story, and Jesus is spared at this time. Um, the children of Bethlehem are not two and younger, but Jesus is. And it's puzzling because one of the things that Christians know by the way the gospel stories have unfolded is Jesus's purpose was to come to die. Is that not at the heart of the Christian message that Jesus came in order to die? So why didn't he die then? <laughs> he came then, but he was delivered, but he was delivered from death. Why not just allow him to die then? And one of the things we need to remember is the focal point is Jesus suffering death on the cross for us. But he didn't simply come to die. He came to live an upright life before he died. So his being born and his dying would not have accomplished what his being born and facing Satan and not giving it to temptation and fulfilling the story of Israel, but getting right what God's people got wrong all these years. He fulfills righteousness, which means when the time does come by God's appointment for him to die at his crucifixion, he's not just another guy that was born to die, but having fulfilled righteousness, he's born to die a death in the place of sinners so that we who have sinned and have no righteousness of our own would have hope that we can live a good life and not be overcome by the tyranny of evil. What we're told is that the story begins here, but it's not fulfilled instantly. God comes to do good. And as the good comes, more evil comes. But the evil continues. The, the desire to kill Jesus continued throughout his whole ministry until in his timing, he showed he was the one who was in control by handing himself over to evil and not giving it to temptation and allowing him to be killed so that he, the one ruler who would be a shepherd, would lay down his life for the sheep. The Christmas story is a beginning of a story that gets worse before it gets better. But it reminds us in time that things may get worse for us before it gets better. But we have a defender, somebody who is with us, and we have a shepherd who will lead us. And so I don't know why God didn't instantly clear things up, uh, why he sent Jesus to, to take 30 years to grow up and to fulfill a righteous life. I don't have all the answers to that. And I don't have all the answers to know why he still has not come to put an end to all that's evil. But we're told he's come. And the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, reminds us that he came. But it's a song that we sing now today of longing that one day he would come in his fullness, because that's his promise. And the confidence we have is, as he fulfilled his promise then to come in a remarkable way himself, born into this world, facing evil, that his promise that he has not left us, but he will return for us, helps us as we try to do good, but experience the evil within and the evil without. And that's the thing. Um, 
evil is always going to be a force at work in us that we can't face. But if we have somebody to defend us, when I was when I was six, my family moved um, to a different neighborhood. I grew up in Brooklyn, lots of Jews in Brooklyn, but we moved to a neighborhood where there weren't many Jewish kids. And so um, we were the Jews. <laughs> so, so not a big deal, uh, but there was one kid that lived down in the block who was a little bit older uh, than me. He, I was six, he might've been eight or nine. And you could probably see looking at me, I'm kind of a big intim- intimidating guy, but, but when I was young, I wasn't. I was kind of skinny and just average. Uh, but this guy, not only was he older than me, but he was above average in height and weight. Uh, and he would harass my brother and I as we would walk to school. And there was a kid downstairs. Um, he was also older. And sometimes he would walk with us. And one day the guy across the street had had the question from, why are you hanging out with those Jews? And the, the kid downstairs got angry and went over and they had a fight. And there was something there that my brother for, my brother and I for weeks, uh, we were afraid every time we had to go to school, what, what, what if this guy comes out and sees us? We would think, what if we walk a different route, a different direction? And, and the, the kid that lived downstairs from us, when he was with us, we realized uh, we were safe. We had somebody who would defend us, somebody who would lead us to school and advocate for us. And when you feel helpless, that, that makes a difference. And, and, and that's the Christmas story, God's helpless people crying out throughout the ages. We just want to live good lives. We, we don't want to be overcome by evil. We, we, we want an end to tyranny. We don't want death. And what we're told is that God will provide a ruler who would come and defend us, and he will shepherd us. And what we're told is that, that the story begins uh, at the birth of Jesus in its fullness, and we're told to wait on him, the one who is our defender because he laid down his life and he's now enthroned in the heavens advocating for us and he will lead us. And so, so why do we still suffer? I don't know. Um, but we know when we do, we, will, we don't have to be overcome by the tyranny of evil because Jesus not only died in our place, but having been raised from the dead, He showed us that there's a power more powerful than death, and it's in him. So anyone that would threaten you and say, unless you give in to me, there is no joy, there is no hope. We know it's a lie. We know it's a manipulation. So we're told whenever that happens, look to your ruler, look to your shepherd, draw near to the advocate, because he will defend you. He will rule over your life. And when that happens, you have you have a reason to rejoice that even in the midst of our suffering, uh, we can rejoice because Emmanuel, God is with us. And so here's what I want to leave you. As a practice, what do we do? Um, We have to see that in the Christmas story, Herod was there, evil was there. But that's that's not the dominant strand of the Christian story. It's it's the reality that whenever good comes, evil arises. Let's look at these magi that come and they know nothing. Uh, They're not theologically trained. They're not orthodox. Uh, They saw a star and they show up and and the scriptures are opened and then they see God with us. And what do they do? And there's three things. And and, and this becomes a bit of a picture of the Christian life. This is verses 10 to 12. When they they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced. So this month we're going to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. 
yeah, this is a hard year. We don't have to pretend it's not. And for some of you, it's really hard. But you're invited to sing the chorus with us. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Um, that is part of the Christian life that, that, yeah, good is always opposed. Suffering continues. And sometimes it rears its head in ugly ways. But you are not excluded from the community that's called to rejoice. And so, so the Magi rejoiced when they saw Jesus. That's essential to the Christmas practice. If Jesus has come, we have something to rejoice about. Let, let's do that. The second thing they do, verse 11, they go into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And so this season, yes, we're overwhelmed, but, but, but let's give honor and glory to God because, because there is a ruler, a shepherd, and he is worthy of our devotion, our honor, our commitment, our thankfulness. And so let's Let's do that, even if it's hard, even if it's opposed in our minds or our hearts or by people around us. Let's, let's worship the Lord. And the third thing, they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They, they were generous. They gave gifts. What do you have that you can give to God? Um, part of the Christmas celebration is the generosity of spirit to say, if we can rejoice, if there is goodness, even if evil will oppose it, <laughs> I'm not going to give into the ways of tyranny, but I'm going to be one who gives. And so what has God gifted, given you, whether it's a material thing, you have money that you can share, whether it's an ability, a gifting, that you're an encourager or you're a help or you could pray for others. Um, there's lots of things that any person can do. There's something God has given you or entrusted to you that you can give. If you don't know what it is, pray that God would show you. And this season, no matter what's happening around us, no matter how hard it is, commit to doing good. Expect opposition, but if you follow the ruler, the good shepherd, you don't have to be overcome by evil, but you could overcome evil by good. And the Christmas story tells us God has come as he promised, and he will be with you. So don't be overcome, but commit to rejoicing, to worshiping the king, and to taking the gifts God has given you, and to spreading them abroad. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, some of us, some of us don't want to do good. We look at our hearts and we're angry and we're cynical and we're tempted. And Lord, we need your help. Some of us want to do good, but we're so weak that we just don't do it with any consistency. Uh, perhaps there's a few of us that really have matured and are growing, but, but we confess it's hard. <laughs> Why on earth is good opposed in this world? We don't know. But Lord, we know that we are weak and we need a defender and we need a ruler. And so we look to you, the one who alone resisted the influence of Satan, the one who alone faced death as a righteous man, the one who alone was qualified to give down his, to lay down his life, to give life to others. And so it's in his name, Lord, we pray for strength. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for your patience, but we pray that we would not be overcome by evil, but that we would be overcome by your good. So defend us, rule over us. Help us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.